You're listening to Indie Live Radio and this is our Changing Minds series. And this week we're joining Yes Inverclyde, who invited Neil Gray, MSP, to talk to them. And the subject of his talk is A Route Map for a Socially Just Society. Just want to say that the team here at Indie Live Radio really appreciate Yes Inverclyde for allowing us to join them and to broadcast the meeting. So good evening everybody and I just want to welcome everybody uh, to our online meeting tonight. I am Liz Robertson and I am the SNP group leader in Everclyde Council so it's lovely to see you all and really we're here tonight to welcome another special guest who is our speaker this evening Neil Gray. Neil is the Member of the Scottish Parliament for Airdrie and Shots and has been since the election in May of this year. Neil is currently the convener of the Social Justice and Social Security Committee at Holyrood and this committee was established in June of this year and it looks at subjects such as welfare, poverty, homelessness, the social security system in Scotland, violence against women and girls and domestic violence, social justice and looking at ways to create a fairer Scotland. And Neil, we just want you to know how much we value the work that your committee is doing, how essential we know it is for the people of our communities here in Inverclyde. Neil, I know that you've spoken to dozens of branches, dozens of groups across the country about the report, and you've been encouraged by the depth of debate and engagement that's come from this living, breathing piece of work that is genuinely shaping our future. Thank you very much indeed, Liz. Um, thank you to Greenock and Inverclyde SNP for having me along tonight. Uh, welcome also uh, to those joining us on Indie Live Radio 2. Uh, you're all very welcome and I hope that this is uh, an informative discussion uh, around the key area uh, that I think that we're all in politics for. We want independence but we want it for a purpose and that purpose is to create a fairer more socially just Scotland uh, that looks after our people, eradicates poverty and has compassion at its heart. Um, you read that fantastic passage um, in the, the opening uh, part of the executive summary, Liz, and uh, I think that encapsulates well the work that the Commission uh, sought to do. We were uh, appointed by Nicola Sturgeon as the party leader to consider how we get to the point of having a fairer, more socially just, independent Scotland. Uh, the remit included looking at policy areas in the here and now within the devolved settlement. However, it doesn't take us very long to look at some of the policy areas that we think would get us to the point of being fairer, more socially just, and it doesn't take long for us to realise that we require independence to really complete that journey and to make the headway that we need to make. <clears throat> It was an absolute pleasure for me uh, to be involved in the Commission's work um, and to be able to work with some fantastic colleagues. Uh, your own uh, MSP, Stuart McMillan, did a power of work as part of that co uh, Commission uh, and really had his views rooted uh, in the issues that he sees uh, day in, day out within Inverclyde. And he always uh, had examples uh, to reference when he was looking to make points within the uh, Commission, uh, referring back to his work in Inverclyde. So I want to thank Stuart for his time and his efforts and, as part of the Commission. But we also had a, a range of other uh, party and non-party uh, contributors of, of commissioners. Obviously, we were chaired uh, by uh, Shona Robeson, who's gone on to become the Cabinet Secretary for Social Justice and Social Security, a fantastic appointment. But we also had uh, non-party involvement, such as uh, Sir Harry Burns, 
uh, Angela Hagan, formerly of the Women's Budget and uh, Women's Budget Group in Scotland. You know, fantastic input, uh, fantastic knowledge and experience that really informed our work and made sure that uh, we came to decisions that were based on you know the research that's been carried out on uh, in various guises across Scotland, uh, but also the lived experience that was also involved in the commission and that we sought out uh, when we were doing our consultation work as well. Um, I think it's fair to say that the pandemic really shaped uh, our work. We only had two, I think, or three physical meetings uh, before uh, the pandemic hit. And for the rest of the time, all of our work was carried out in Zoom rooms like this, uh, where we were both consulting uh, and uh, meeting as a commission uh, online. And it also, I think, really focused our attention on the impact that the pandemic has had on levels of poverty, on uh, social deprivation, on social inequalities, and how that's been exacerbated, but also how there has been a real energization, energy across communities in Scotland. I certainly experienced it in my Urgent Shots con constituency. I'm sure uh, you will have all experienced it in Inverclyde as well, where the community really came together for the common wheel and we really want to try and harness that. We want to use some of those examples of community spirit, of uh, working together uh, and recognising that by looking after one, uh, one another, we really benefit each other so much more uh, than if we were to allow people to remain impoverished and to remain uh, in uh, difficulty. And so there's a common thread all the way through our report around making sure that we're working together as a society to tackle the social problems that we face, which then provide economic and, and social benefit to our nation as well. Uh, there are three key themes <clears throat> that we start off with for anyone that's already read the executive summary and the, and the report. They're as weighty as they are. The, the full report is very substantial. Uh, the executive summary, we've tried to uh, condense a little bit some of the arguments so that it's a bit uh, easier to access. But you'll, you'll see there the three key themes that we think we need to uh, utilise in order to start that work of, of creating a, a fairer Scotland. The first uh, is, of course, uh, around uh, citizenship and citizenship participation and democratic renewal. Uh, we want to see greater involvement of people with lived experience and who need and use the services that we're talking about the most to be better involved in decision-making. So we want to see a greater involvement of citizens' assemblies. We want to see uh, more participatory budgeting uh, and uh, to really make sure that we are getting the policies right uh, for the people who need and use them the most. And then it's about making sure that our compass is set in the right direction. Uh, so setting a path uh, of uh, common purpose, uh, gaining uh, uh, consensus uh, amongst our communities for the the direction of travel that we all feel is, is most important. So hopefully that would mean a human rights, well-being economy based approach, uh, which would be encapsulated by a written constitution uh, for an independent Scotland. And then the third principle is about making sure that we then prioritise the policies that can really deliver that well-being economy based on human rights, dignity and respect. And that is where I think the meat of much of what we talk about uh, comes forward and where there's been most uh, discussion around some of the policies that we have suggested. 
we very deliberately made sure that it wasn't a traditional, fully costed manifesto that you would see at election time. It was about the vision. It was about what we wanted Scotland to look like 15 or 20 years, three or four parliamentary terms post-independence, because that's where you start to get common purpose. That's where you start to build consensus around uh, what it is you're wanting to achieve, and you gain longer-term political buy-in for achieving those aims. Uh, and you know, it's not to say that we didn't look at the uh, revenue-raising elements of policy. Of course, we've we've got some uh, in there, uh, but the uh, we felt that <clears throat> it was important to make sure that we concentrated on the vision because that is what really uh, builds the momentum, both in terms of why we think it's important to be independent, but also then uh, to around the, 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 those policy areas that will make the, the real discernible difference when we are independent. Um, so some of those policy areas uh, that we talk about, we were very fortunate to have a substantial input from uh, some fantastic uh, people who really helped us out on a number of areas, both uh, people who are supportive of independence, who were agnostic, towards the constitutional issue and some who were opposed. Uh, we consulted with all. Uh, and uh, I think our document is all the better for it because it is a real reflection of some of the social justice uh, discussion points that are going on at the moment. Of course, I think uh, universal basic income is one that is really topical. It's one that everybody uh, picked out from uh, the report as being a key area, and uh, it would be remiss of me not to mention Ronnie Cowan at this stage for all the fantastic work that he has done in that field, um, and uh, you know the suggestions that came forward there. Uh, but we uh, we feel that you know on, on universal basic income, the work is still to be done, and we need the powers of independence, and that really makes the case for independence better than any of us could. That even to trial, even to pilot a universal basic income to establish whether or not it is the right thing for eradicating poverty, providing a transformation of our society to give people the security they need to live their lives well, even just to trial it and to get the evidence. Uh, we have to go begging to the DWP and the Treasury who have already said no, that's not going to happen. We can't even pilot it, can't trial it. We need the powers of independence just to gather the evidence, never mind to implement it. Uh, there are a number of other areas um, that we benefited from expert input, such as uh, Stuart MacDonald, uh, MP for Cumbernauld, who's our immigration spokesperson, who uh, contributed a substantial paper on immigration, uh, which uh, is very, uh, very well received and I think uh, makes some fantastic suggestions. Um, and like I said, uh, Professor Harry Burns and Professor Mark Stevens, uh, Rob Gibson, uh, who maybe many of you will be familiar with as well, did a lot of work around housing uh, and on land reform as well, which I think uh, was really important. And uh, we clearly benefited from their expertise. <clears throat> um, also, what's important to state at this stage is that None of these policies, I think, can be taken in isolation. None of these policy suggestions uh, really get us across the line on their own. They need to be taken together. So if we're looking at something like a land value tax, uh, land reform, um, housing, you know, looking at housing policy and immigration, all of those things need to be taken together because they need to be complementary. It needs to be a cross-government, cross-society approach for it to work. 
Uh, and that's why independence is so important because there are some areas there around housing that we can look at just now. There are some areas around uh, taxation, around land reform that we can look at now, but we really don't get the benefit. We don't get the holistic benefit from those policies unless they're taken together, unless we are getting uh, to see both sides of the balance sheet in terms of spending and revenue raising. Uh, and that's why independence is so important for us to be able to deliver on what we have suggested. Uh, there are other areas in there that we have suggested that uh, could happen now. Uh, and I was very pleased to see a number of those included in the SNP manifesto for the election that we just won handsomely in May. Um, areas such as a minimum income guarantee, which some people see either as an alternative to a universal basic income or a stepping stone towards a universal basic income. Uh, that for me is a very exciting proposal. Uh, other areas um, include a national care service uh, as well, which is also in the manifesto and I think uh, will make a huge difference in terms of uh, the uh, areas that are needing reform in our social care services. So all of this is geared towards making sure that what we are doing is delivering a society that has compassion, that has social justice, and tackling poverty at its heart. And as I said, we can only deliver that with the powers of independence. And I'm really pleased that branches across Scotland, yes, groups across Scotland are engaging with the report. It's there as a tool. It's there uh, for you to use, for you to lift sections out as Liz does, did at the start, put them on your leaflets, talk about them. That is the way we get to our, our goal of independence. And I really appreciate your time tonight to consider that. And I'm looking forward very much to your questions. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Neil. Um, really appreciate um, everything that you've said there. Uh, Neil was mentioning a lot about independence. Can you tell us when is Nicola going to ask for a section 30? Because if she doesn't, I'm never going to get independence. Absolutely, Isabel. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, there, there are a couple of things in there that I think are really important to stress. First of all is around, uh, you know, our preferred route to get independence, which is through a Section 30 order referendum, winning that referendum and gaining the international recognition that that delivers. Um, there are potentially other routes, but I think that is by any estimation, by most commentators' uh, judgment, is the best way for us to do so. Um, I don't know is the honest answer, Isabella. I think um, We've said, obviously, that the Scottish Government has said that uh, we want a referendum the first half of this parliamentary term. That is the target. By 2023, would that, that would be uh, the goal. Uh, but we've also said that, and Nicola said this, that we need to make sure that the pandemic is uh, over, that we are through the worst of the pandemic to make sure uh, that it is safe for us to uh, take that action. But um, that's not to say that the work doesn't, isn't getting done and doesn't need to get done. I mean, the Commission's work that we have produced just now on uh, updating the potential perspectives from a social justice, fairness, anti-poverty perspective is very important. I think it, it adds value to our case, uh, but there are other areas that we still need to do work, and that is absolutely, that's evident. I think we need to, uh, both the, the union side and the independent side need to update their economic argument in light of the pandemic. Everything's changed. And there are other areas that, need, that, that work needs to get done as well. But I, like you, 
want to happen want it to happen yesterday. I am as impatient for us to have that second referendum as you are. I'm as excited about taking that case to our communities across Scotland as you are, because I think we have got a very good story to tell and a very persuasive argument. Um, but it's about persuasion and it's about making sure that we're taking people with us. Uh, and I think we need to make sure that we time that right to ensure that we are doing it with the blessing of the people of Scotland, that they are with us on that journey, because that's the only way that we win, is by taking the people with us. Yeah, but we've only got two years till your time. And if she doesn't set out a date or even ask for a Section 30 and give us some idea about what to tell people about currency and all the rest of it, it's going to go on and on and on. I'm confident that the First Minister is alive to those concerns um, and those th that impatience, as, as you are, Isabella. I've, I've no doubt, um, you know, a lifelong nationalist that she is, a campaigner for independence all her life. I know that uh, she is doing all she can to make sure that that is coming as quickly as possible. Um, and like you, I'm as impatient, but I'm also realistic that we need to do this when it's safe. We need to make sure the groundwork is done, like you say, um, and uh, we need to make sure that we are taking the people of Scotland with us uh, on that journey because we only win if we have persuaded them of the merits of our case. And it's a, a kind of it's a question really about the minimum income guarantee and the relationship between that and universal basic income, just for anybody who isn't certain about the, the differentiation between the two. Not sorry to put you on the spot about it, but can you maybe kind of outline what the difference is between them both, Neil? It's not putting me on the spot because we've done extensive work on this as part of the Commission's work. So a universal basic income is basically a unconditional cash payment uh, that is made to every citizen or every resident uh, in the country. Um, it's set at a particular level. Depending on that level, it can either work with or instead of social security benefits, uh, with or instead of the state pension. Um, and, uh, you know, as a result, um, it requires a transformational change in our social security and tax system. That means that it would take time to develop. Um, I think we have to be honest about that, especially if we are paying it at a level that is actually going to make a difference in terms of addressing poverty, which I think has to be the primary motivation. And it would be expensive um, and would require quite considerable resource, um, which means that there, are, there could be uh, challenges in terms of uh, persuading people of the merits of it unless we can see the evidence of it actually addressing poverty. I'm attracted to it for many reasons, but one being uh, the potential to tackle poverty if it's set at, at a high enough level, uh, but also the, the area of security that I talked about earlier and rewarding people who are giving up their time freely as volunteers, unpaid carers, unpaid uh, volunteers across our communities and really recognizing the contribution that they make to our society. A UBI would do that, would, would allow them to do that um, and give them additional security. So, uh, but also, and, and this is one of the key arguments that Ronnie uh, makes, is it would also free people and, and 
uh, provide them of, uh, a level of income security that would allow much more participation in creative industries and uh, and to do much more than in in terms of sport, you know, uh, creative work, um, and that could be transformational for our society in terms of uh, in terms of the growth of of the arts. A minimum we can guarantee is slightly different in that it looks at uh, what people need from the perspective of income and services in order to live their lives well. So it's not just uh, you know income dependent, which a UBI is. It's also based on the services that are provided by government, by the state, such as childcare, education, tra public transport, etc., that that allow people to be able to live their lives well. And um, I, I think, you know, there are going to be undoubted challenges for us as a Scottish government, uh, for our Scottish government, to be able to deliver that within a devolved settlement, because many of the income parts are, you know, dependent on the benevolence of the UK government. Um, but I think it is absolutely right that the Scottish government is doing that work to develop the case and to, and start the work on what a minimum income guarantee could look like, because I think that, uh, again, could be transformational in terms of addressing the poverty that we are seeing in our communities, which is, as I say, not just a social or a moral imperative that we tackle it. It's also an economic one, you know, because the, the, the key drivers of some of the major social problems that we have in Scotland, uh, you know, drug deaths, um, you know, health inequalities, educational attainment gaps, um, problems in our justice system are all driven by poverty. And so it's an absolute imperative that we tackle poverty to ensure that, you know, for so social reasons, moral reasons, but also from an economic perspective, tackling poverty is the best preventative spend that we could make as a society. Um, and that's why we need to make the case uh, for independence, because... Uh, you know, by by looking after each other, we can all live better. That's really helpful. Thank you. That's uh, that's really helpful to have that sort of distinction between the, the the two. Hi there, Neil. Right. No, it's actually the greater involvement one that's actually piqued my interest. There, now I take it this is something that's going to predate any referendum, or is this going to be after? In the yeah, in terms of involvement in, uh, of people with lived experience in decision making, we're, we are already seeing some of that. The creation of Social Security Scotland, for instance, and um, the uh, limited uh, powers over Social Security, we're already seeing experience panels informing uh, those policy mm -hmm. areas. We've already seen uh, uh, citizens' assemblies uh, started uh, in the devolved setting. So we are starting to see that. I do think that there is more that can be done. How how is that sort of planning on on moving forward with the the citizens uh, assemblies? I mean, I've heard the, the the term actually used, but haven't actually seen any of it uh, personally in action. I mean, are these going to be localised citizens assemblies? Are they going to be are they online? Are people put themselves forward for it, or are they contacted? You know, how is it it put together? So there are a number of different ways that uh, citizens' assemblies can be established, but certainly for me, it's about the Scottish government leading on that. And the, the Scottish government has had citizens' assemblies on the future of Scotland, on 
um, you know, what people in Scotland want to see the, their nation looking like, how that can be arrived at, having, you know, those iterative discussions. Uh, we've made a suggestion that uh, the reform of drugs policy, um, when we get control, the full control of uh, powers over drug policy, it would probably be a good idea to have a citizens' assembly on uh, drug reform to make sure that uh, there is an understanding of why we need to uh, make the changes that we do. Obviously, there are yeah. some major changes that are happening in the devolved settlement already, but I think going forward, uh, you know, some of the trickier issues, I think, uh, some of the issues yeah. that there are real divergences in terms of opinion, I think it's useful to have that um, yeah, I, I, I get that. In, in the space of a citizens' assembly. What I'm looking for, though, the information I'm actually sort of looking for is how are they actually formed? Where do the members of a citizens' assembly come from? How are they contacted? How is it put together? So it's a representative sample of uh, our society. Um, uh, the Scottish government has um, organised those. That 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 would be the the the, the forum that uh, where these are set up. And as I say, there are, people are selected uh, based on making sure that they are representative of Scotland in a similar way that opinion polling research is conducted to make sure that you are hitting uh, all geographical areas, all demographics of the particular area that you're looking at. Um, and so that's the work that's been done. I think that the responsibility of that lies with George Adams' ministerial uh, portfolio just now. It was previously, I think, uh, Michael Russell's, um, but that that's how they're established. Right, okay, so effectively what they do is they have a list of names of people that they have maybe contacted from a poll who they then contact to, to make up. Forgive me, Irene, I don't know the exact ins and outs of, of, of exactly how people are selected or, or how names are arrived at, but um, that's definitely the, the, the principle of ensuring that they're representative is the important part. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your question, Irene. Uh, the next person I am going to call is Graham. Graham McCormick, welcome, Graham. Yeah, thank, uh, thanks, thanks very much, Liz. Um, and uh, it, it's good to be back with the good folk of Inverclyde. Um, I'm intrigued about this issue about a pilot for a universal citizen's income. I think it, it's pretty self-evident that the reason people are in poverty is that they don't have enough money in their pocket. And we actually do have, under the current devolution settlement, a means by which we can raise enough money for a really worthwhile citizen's income of £200 a week for everyone and more. Um, and so I, I don't see why just now the Scottish Government just doesn't go ahead uh, uh, with this uh, and provide the uh, a really decent uh, universal citizen's income for everybody because that really would set us apart from the rest of the UK. Uh, it would drive a massive wedge between us and the rest of the UK. So people, you know, who are uh, in their extremities just now would have the confidence to vote yes, to support independence, uh, and it would be something which would be additional to the state pension. Uh, since the state pension is something which is a contract with the UK government, uh, and that is a reserved responsibility. But a universal citizen's income is not a reserved responsibility. 
so I, I would like to challenge the idea that, you know, we just don't bring it in because we have the means to do it under section, we have the means to fund it under section 80i of the Scotland Act. I would disagree with that, Graham, in the sense that um, on two for two reasons, one on power, one on resource. Uh, on the part of power, um, the request has been made, the discussions have been had with the Treasury in order and the DWP in order for that to take place, because you just you don't in order for a UBI or a or a you know a citizen's income to work, you need to have the current social security benefits to be removed, uh, and there are implications for your reserve benefits and for your devolved benefits if there was to be another payment made, uh, and so it, it's not just as simple as just starting it um, tomorrow, and that is before we get to the resource point. Um, because we're already seeing a challenge um, in the lead up to uh, this Scottish budget in terms of doubling the Scottish child payment now or uh, whether that happens over the next few years over the course of this parliamentary term. And that is talking about a targeted payment uh, going up from £10 a week to £20 a week. So for us to talk about you know, 10 times that amount um, per week for every citizen it is you know, extremely challenging uh, to the point of it not being realistic within the current confines of our social security and taxation system, which is why the powers of independence are so important. Because uh, for me, for this to be done safely, you need to transition to a UBI if that is to be found to be the right way of tackling poverty. And I, I take your point. I think you know, money in people's po pockets is the primary reason why we have poverty uh, in this country. There are other reasons as well around access to services and um, remoteness from those services. There are any number of people reasons why people fluctuate in and out of poverty. Fundamentally, it's about money in your pocket. I get that. Um, uh, but I, I really think, you know, for us to do this responsibly, it has to be phased in uh, over time. And it's not something that, you know, you can flick a switch and say, uh, you're current reserved universal credit stops tonight and your universal basic income starts tomorrow. Um, universal credit wasn't able to be established in that way. We're still seeing that rollout take place, although in a botched way, and I'd expect us to do much better in terms of any social security system uh, in an independent Scotland. But that, I think, tells you why it's not possible for it to be happening right now. If it was, it would be something that would be looked at. But we've had to look to get permission from the Secretary of State for working pensions and from the Treasury just to look at trying to pilot these areas because of the implications that they have on our on our people's uh, current income through social security benefits. So I absolutely take your point. I think this is something that we have to look at. I think it has the potential to be transformational in terms of addressing poverty. But for the two reasons I outline, power and resource, we need the powers of independence to deliver it. Well, well, if if I could come back on that, first of all, you have you have the ability to resource it uh, through uh, a model of annual ground rent, which I have presented to uh, yes, Inver Clyde before, uh, mm. and that is by raising funds which you don't need the permission of HMRC to be involved in. You don't need the permission of uh, of the United Kingdom government to to introduce now a, a universal. Citizens' income of £200 a week would cost about £55 billion. 
uh, if you take that £55 billion, pounds, plus the uh, expenditure of the Scottish government and the Scottish government agencies and local authorities, uh, that would mean that uh, you would need to charge something in the region of £6.50 per square metre for, for, for all land, uh, floors and roofs in Scotland. And, that would not, and you could actually, you could abolish council tax, you could abolish commercial rates, you could also set income tax, earned income tax rate at zero, and you would earn far more for that. And I would challenge you and say that the reluctance for the Scottish Government to bring that in is that, as the Land Commission has indicated in their work, over 60% of dilapidated and vacant land and property in Scotland is in the public sector. And they are not stewarding uh, what they own properly. And if they were forced to steward it and actually look at the land and assets which they have so that they were stewarded properly, properly then there is more than enough money uh, you know, that can be raised in order to fund a, a very significant universal citizens' income. And the other thing about the beauty of that is that you, you, you don't need to look at how it impacts and other benefits that are produced from the, the, the UK government. Uh, because, you know, it's a standalone thing uh, which can be introduced and it can also be, uh, if, if, if there are implications from an earned income tax point of view, for example, then it, it's possible to adjust the figures within that £55 billion. Pounds. So it's wrong to say that you can't bring it in. You can bring it. You have the power to bring it in. Sorry, it, it, just to go back on your sums there. So, th mm -hmm. did you say fifty-five million is what it would cost? Billion, billion, fifty-five billion. billion it would cost. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Wh which, just to give in terms of context, even with the uprating of the Scottish budget uh, coming next week, uh, uh, over the coming weeks, uh, from the UK budget. That is substantially more than the entire Scottish budget currently is. It's not based on projections, it's based on things that we know. We know the landmass of Scotland, we know the area of Scotland, we know what is designated as urban Scotland. Yeah. So, we, 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 so, so as a result of that, we know that information. So, if this, if the Scottish government decides to spend a certain level of money on certain things, including that fifty-five billion, it's a matter of the total budget being divided by the the rate per square meter on these things, and that that that's how it's worked out. It's not based on economic estimates. It's based on something that we already know. I'd be keen um, to see Graham's workings on that because. Well, I sent um, you the book. <laughs> I sent all oh, there. It's there. I sent every I've, MSP a book. All right, I have. I haven't got that yet, but if, if I'll, I'll have another look at my post bag to see if it's there. But I haven't. I certainly haven't seen that yet. But I, I, I appreciate um, your suggestions, and I can understand the desire to see this uh, happening quickly because we all want to tackle poverty and I think that is absolutely uh, paramount. Um, I, I, I'd be more than happy to have a look at um, what you've suggested, um, but I think for me the safest, most uh, reasonable and um, uh, most likely way of us getting to the point where we can look at a UBI being whether it's the right 
ID or not, or a fully fledged minimum income guarantee is with the powers of independence, because that allows us to control both sides of the balance sheet. We don't even have full control of our income tax. So when we're talking about how this might be paid for and how um, we are you know, looking, you know, the discussion there around unknown tax that you're talking about there, Graham, that we don't have full control of our, ta of our income tax powers, net, let alone other elements of taxation. Um, so I take your point and, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your passion and I'd be more than happy to look at whatever you've got to send over to me. Hi, it's great to hear the ambition that we all have for Scotland so we can be rowing about, can we get a land value tax sorted and get it now? Um, I'm expecting the Social Justice Commission report to be at pretty much the foundation of our prospectus for independence. And I just wondered if you would simply talk about the various policies that are in it, because I'm going to guess most people haven't had the chance to really read it. So it'd be helpful just to have a run through of what the, the big ticket items are in there. I think there's quite a few and they're uh, most welcome from what I read. My second question is whether you'd be able to update us on what might be happening with the National Care Service. I don't know if you're in a position to do that. Um, I realise the report's recommendation is that it should be a non-profit, publicly owned service, and that would be welcome from my point of view. Um, so I wondered if you could uh, just say about the policies in general that you've selected and why, and um, also, if you can, see a wee bit more about what's happening with that manifesto commitment for the National Care Service. You're really testing my memory, Agnes. Oh, um, sorry. sorry. This, this is a, it was a substantial document that we produced. I would encourage everyone to go back and have a, a read at least of the executive summary if that has been circulated to colleagues. I think that would be really helpful. Um, because you can pick out from there the parts that are really of most interest to you, the, um, you know, personally, but also in your area that you think is going to be most uh, useful in terms of your campaigning and, and where you think that there's good, it's going to resonate most um, with people that you are campaigning for. Um, I, I'll do my best to run through as many as I can. Uh, I've listed some already. Uh, we looked at a universal basic income. We looked at transforming the social security system, uh, providing potentially a, a minimum income guarantee as an alternative. Um, we are looking to make sure that we're protecting all of the people who live here in Scotland, so addressing no recourse to public funds, um, ensuring that we have a fairer immigration system uh, that uh, ensures that we're actually serving the needs of the Scottish economy. Um, we are looking to develop a well-being economy, rather uh, that, uh, an economy that serves the people rather than the other way around, which is what we have under the UK at the moment. Uh, we're looking to transform our housing system uh, from what we have just now, which is a housing uh, system which uh, means that the aspiration is to own your home as an asset uh, or owning your houses as an asset rather than um, providing uh, homes for people to live in. So we want to see a substantial increase um, in uh, the provision of social uh, housing for social rent. Um, we also talk about uh, proponents of a land value tax. We think that that time has come. Um, and uh, look into a fairer taxation system that makes sure that those with the broadest shoulders pay the, uh, the most, and also recognising the social need for why that is important and why it's a privilege to pay tax um, to, you know, to make sure that we're funding services and also uh, looking after one another. And, and it's actually, um, you know, 
intrinsically so important for all of us, whether we're paying tax or not. Um, but all of us actually are paying tax in some form, whether it's income tax or not. You know, all of us purchase goods in the shop and pay VAT. We all have um, a, a, an economic contribution to make. Uh, there are obviously, we talk about a national care service, uh, as you have touched on. Um, we, as you say, believe that um, that is that is the right thing to do to make sure that we uh, are addressing the challenges that are being faced in social care right now. Um, they've obviously been exacerbated by the pandemic, but there were issues that were there prior to the pandemic uh, in terms of uh, getting access to uh, people to staff our social care sector and ensuring that uh, those people that are working in social care uh, have uh, consistent terms and conditions. Uh, so we want to bring those standards up on a national basis to make sure that social care is a career that is attractive to people, that makes sure that we uh, are bringing people into social care to work and they're being properly rewarded. Um, and uh, yeah, so for, for me personally, uh, I don't know what the government is going to end up recommending. My preference and the Commission's definite preference was to ensure that that remains um, uh, delivered uh, on a national uh, basis or delivered and wholly owned uh, by the public sector. Um, so that's a bit of a, a whistle-top rattle through um, some of the policies. In terms of where we are, and I'm happy, you know, if there are other areas that you have any questions about, whether we talk about um, particular issues, I'm happy to try to uh, do it in a reverse way. Um, but in terms of where our manifesto commitment is around uh, a national care service delivery, uh, the Scottish Government is, about to, is consulting on what that should look like. Um, we're expecting a bill uh, to come next year. It is going to be huge. Um, I sit on the conveners group in the Scottish Parliament where all the committee conveners uh, come together to discuss how committee work and scrutiny of government is working. And um, we were discussing the National Care Service Bill today, actually, because of its scale, it is going to be the single biggest change in our public sector since devolution. Um, it is going to be a massive infrastructure and social change. I think it's necessary. I think it's the right thing to do. We can have a debate and discussion, which is what the consultation is all about, about how that is how that works. Uh, you know how we have local accountability, how we make sure that it uh, addresses local need, um, and uh, you know what the the, the standards uh, will look like. Um, but I think you know having social care sitting on a par with healthcare, I think, is an important principle for us to follow. I hope that answers. That's great. I'm selling point for people to uh, now read it when I send out the link again to the executive summary. There's lots of good stuff in the report that I think would appeal to all of us and is certainly going to be a calling card for persuading people to yes, I hope. Uh, you're absolutely right. That for all of us in all the uh, meetings that I have done with yes groups and SNP branches across Scotland, um, often alongside Julie Hepburn, who really was the brains behind much of what we were doing and, and the workhorse behind much of what we were doing. Uh, you know, she reiterates over and over again that this is something to be used by our uh, campaigners, by us all as campaigners. Uh, it's designed for us to be able to lift uh, sections um, of words out and put them into leaflets, use them for 
um, graphics on social media, use you know, quote the commission's work so that you know we're really getting the message out there. And you know, it, I think what's also been really interesting is that the topics that we're discussing, the areas that we're talking about, are ones that really capture the interest about for the people that we're really looking to get to target those soft no voters from 2014 probably those in the center left of center voting wise probably you know been traditional labor voters in areas such as Inverclyde and Greenock and what was really interesting was when I took a debate to parliament at the at to Holyrood um, right at the start of the session, one of the first members' debates on the Social Justice and Fairness Commission report, the Labour response was really constructive, at least to begin with. You know, on the on the actual issues and the policy areas that we were discussing, there was a lot of consensus between Labour and the SNP on the on the proposals that we're talking about. You know, the kind of reverted tight then and said, you know, independence is not the way to deliver this. I put everything at risk and all the rest of it, um, which we would expect, but. Actually, I think for most people, when we talk about uh, some of the issues that we're, talk we're, we're looking to address, the immigration status, the employment market, we have no control over employment law. Uh, you know, those areas where we're wanting to see reform, um, we, we get buy-in from uh, people uh, on, uh, that we're campaigning with and saying, yeah, this is what we want to see too. You're absolutely right. How do we do it? And we say, well, Scottish Parliament doesn't have the powers right now. There are no... Uh, you know, proposals on the table uh, to see that happen. You know, you've got the mythical Gordon Brown Commission um, from a party that isn't in government um, and a former prime minister that couldn't even uh, deliver fully on his commitment for, um, I think the closest thing to federalism, I think was the commitment that, uh, you, you know, um, you know. so there's no credibility there from, from that commission. Um, but how do you deliver it? How do you deliver, you know, those changes to employment law or immigration, social security, taxation that we do not have control over right now? And the answer is independence. Um, and when it's boiled down like that, I think that is where we capture people on the issues that are really important to them. We have that discussion. We have that constructive discussion. Um, we gain the, the consensus and then we try to address how it is we get to that point of getting the Scotland that we all want to see. And that is independence. No two ways about it. And that's what's why I think the report is so important and why we need to use it as much as we can. Uh, so only a couple of comments more more on the, the kind of health, the national care uh, service. Uh, I, I work um, in health and social care. Um, and a couple of things I, I, I would like to see, and I'm going to put it into survey. First of all, I don't think that, and this may be slightly controversial, um, I don't think, or I think there should be some kind of ruling about the maximum limit of uh, older people that be in care homes, and I limit it to about six. Um, and my reasoning for that is that um, if you ask anybody, would you want to live in a care home? No, you wouldn't. And you wouldn't because it wouldn't meet, it doesn't meet people's needs. It's like warehousing for older people, and nobody would want to live like that. And I would, that would be one of my, one of the things I'm going to put in the survey. I think the other thing too is that engagement with health and social care um, usually comes through the GP practice at the very, very first, rather than community services. Uh, so I think that there should be a kind of softer engagement um, through the GP practices. Uh, and I'm thinking things like, you know, simple things, making sure that people have got the, all the benefits they need, 
making sure that their house, they've got adequate housing, making sure that they've got adequate food, adequate social opportunity. Now, by the time you come to uh, the social care side of things, they move quite a few stages into quite difficult circumstances before they come to us. Whereas the GP practice is usually the first point of contact, but the GP practices largely look at health and not at the surrounding um, way that person is living. So, so I would really feel that the kind of a boundary between health and social care needs to be softened a lot. And I'd actually have some kind of social engagement in the GP, in all the GP practices, um, which would um, actually slow down people coming through the system, slow down GP attendances, attendances to, to hospitals, attendances to, to help and to community care, because people are slightly better looked after all the way through that system. Exactly why the Scottish Government um, uh, is consulting and needs to consult because you know very cogent issues, very pertinent issues that you're raising there, Doug. And I think it's you know really important, as I'd said earlier, that people with lived and working experience of the areas that we're talking about are able to feed in and to be able to put their points of view across. Um, obviously, you know, I would encourage you to do that. I would also encourage you to get in touch. Um, with your local MSP, Richard Lockhead, to make sure that that is is also uh, fed in via Richard as well, um, so that he's aware of of what you've got to say, and and so that that could be considered as part of what I say is going to be a massive transformation in terms of the the social care landscape, obviously, but also as you rightly say, the health landscape as well, because the interactions are absolutely clear and unavoidable, and that, you know by changing our social care system obviously we're wanting to bring up the health system uh, you know at the same time so very cogent pertinent points that i think uh, would need to be considered yeah and as a wee addition there is a, a care home which plays very successfully which only takes four residents and it takes um residents at council rates you know so so these things can be done um i think the other thing too is to think about money because for someone to be admitted to a hospital is about £1,500 for the first day. You just imagine how much money you could save if you stopped 100 people in a month having to be admitted to hospital because the, their needs had been identified a little bit earlier and met. Huge savings to be yeah. made. Absol you. You're absolutely right. Um, you know, catching issues like this as early as possible is obviously exactly what we're looking for and you know i think the integration of health and social care you know w was designed to try to address some of those areas i think that was the, a good first step but uh, bringing forward a national care service is the next step to make sure that we're completing that journey and and you know, you hadn't considered, you know, the size of care homes or how that would work or the interaction of GPs, but I think you you make very good points and ones that will need to be considered. Great, it's another example of, of just that further engagement about this report. It's a living, breathing report, Neil, as you've said, you know, and, and the more you're engaging on the back of having written it, the more practical outworkings, I guess, we, we can bring to bear in terms of actually realising what's in the report. Saying that it's really refreshing that within the, the Commission's report, it is 
talking about doing things in that longer term. It's not tied to a parliamentary term. It's not tied to that five-year manifesto pledge, blah, 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 blah. And really just, I'm just wondering if you guys as a commission had a sense, or we're wondering if you guys as a commission had a sense of how to make sure that this, that it does still get realised, that, it, you know, even if when we are independent, if the political landscape of Scotland changes, which it probably will in some way, that we, we don't yet know, that, that actually all the things that we've said we want to do in terms of bringing about a socially just Scotland still happen. Absolutely. That that was absolutely at the forefront of our consideration that, you know, transformational change requires consensus building and political buy-in. Um, it was one party that created the National Health Service in a, a very difficult period, but it's been a cross-party support that has sustained it over such a long period of time. Uh, and uh, so we are, are talking about the need to build consensus uh, to uh, forge political alliances to ensure that the transformational we want transform, transformational change we want to make we want to see happen, which will require more than one parliamentary term to deliver, um, has the political consensus to sustain that. Uh, over time and that's why the written constitution is going to be so, so important it's why making sure that we have our uh, policy compass set uh, and uh, with with buy-in from people is going to be so important um so that we can set out our vision for what scotland could look like and the actual implementation of that can be sustained regardless of which party or parties form the government and for someone like myself that has quite a busy working life and quite a busy life outside work, doing all sorts of things, um, it's quite um, difficult to motivate yourself to read something that says report on it and social commission, commission. It sounds quite overwhelming. So an evening like this is really good to encourage you to, like you say, dip in and out. Um, and I was on a letter writing Zoom the other night there um, and, you know, hopefully be able to pick out bits of it to maybe use in our local paper. Yeah, <laughs> just a comment. Sandra, Sandra, that is absolutely uh, music to my ears and warms my pro-independence heart to hear that because that is exactly what we're wanting to see the report used for, uh, for people to engage with it as much or as little as they can. Um, you know, it's very well sectioned, so the, the areas that interest you, you can dip into it, you can, um, you know, just focus on, on one particular area and then use it, um, you know, either in what you're suggesting there in, in terms of, you know, a letter to the paper, I've read this report, I think it's a great idea, you know, for XYZ reason, um, or in terms of local branches, uh, or yes groups looking to produce material either for leaflets or as I say infographics for social media you know, you know it, it, it's for all of us to use and to interact with um, and you know I, I also get take the point that we're all very busy we all live, live busy lives um, my sprinting up the Royal Mile to catch a train to get back in time to uh, feed the kids at dinner time, put them down and then be able to come to this meeting um, is testament to that, as it will be for so many others um, who are, uh, you know, working parents, working hard in, in, in many different ways, have got different responsibilities. Um, so that's why having it nights like this, as you say, I find really enjoyable because I can hear the enthusiasm from 
uh, activists across Scotland. Um, and I can hopefully distill some of what we're talking about in the report into something that people can hear and, and hopefully be enthused by. Uh, uh, but you know, it's on all of us. We're all responsible for getting that message over the line and we're all responsible for, for getting that yes win. And, and it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen by accident. It's going to happen through hard work. And that, you know, we don't have to wait for that starting gun to be fired in terms of talking about the merits of independence. You know, we want to make the case now, we have to make the case now to build that support for why a referendum is important and to make sure that we're hitting the ground running for that referendum campaign. So more power to your letter writing elbow, Sandra, I say. Uh, like I say, keep up the good work uh, in Green Kimber Clyde and uh, thank you again for having me along tonight. Um, it's greatly appreciated. You've been listening to End Alive Radio Changing Minds series. And this week we were with Yes, Inver Clyde and Neil Gray, MSP, and the topic was a route map for a socially just society. If you'd like to find out more about Yes, Inver Clyde or perhaps join them, you'll find them on Twitter, on Facebook and on their own website at yesinverclyde.scot. If you'd like to find out a bit more about the report from the Social Justice and Fairness Commission, you can find that at socialjustice.scot and from there you can download the summary, the full report if you want to get some more detail from it. Hope we've enjoyed this uh, programme and once again thank you very much, yes and required for having us along. <laughs>